Rates and Barrels is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. It's time to start buying those Christmas gifts. So whether you need college football bowl game tickets for a big trip around New Year's, NBA or NHL tickets, Game Time has you covered. Maybe you'd like to gift your favorite podcast host some tickets to the Rose Bowl. You can make that happen with Game Time on Wisconsin. Game Time also has theater tickets, so use it to check out a show when you need a night away from sports. No matter what you're looking for, the checkout process is easy. Two taps, Eno-friendly technology, and the ticket selection is great. Plus, you can see the view from your seats before you commit. The Game Time app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the Game Time app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 56. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Uh, some things have happened since we last spoke. The winter meetings still in progress. It is a Wednesday recording this week. We moved it back a day uh, to accommodate Eno's schedule on the road and to try and capture some of the things that were happening in the last couple of days. And I think we may have succeeded because uh, Garrett Cole is now a Yankee. Steven Strasburg has a new deal with the Nationals. The Rangers and White Sox made a trade that sent Nomar Mazzara packing, and those moves were in the span of about 24 hours. There's a lot of other stuff that happened before the meetings that we'll get to on this show as well. Uh, if you've been listening regularly, you know we are now available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere that you want to listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to leave us a nice rating and review, we would greatly appreciate that. It helps other people find the show. Uh, and that's good for us you know, in the long run. So please do that if you have the time to do it. Uh, some of you might be listening to the show for the very first time. If so, welcome. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Everything we do is included with a subscription to the site. Eno, happy winter meetings. How's San Diego treating you so far? I think if you can hear what I sound like, uh, that's one answer. The other answer I would give you is thank God for toast with a sunny side up egg. <laughs> I, that's 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 all that, that's all I would like to say about that. Okay, uh, <laughs> we, we can leave it at that. That's fine. I mean, San Diego. If, if you had to design a city for Eno or for me or for for most people, San Diego checks a lot of boxes to make oh, people very happy. Good so I, I can see where going into your fourth day in the city with all the things that are happening uh you'd be in, in in less than peak condition but i think this show will be a good one i'm warmed up death and it's my own damn fault i mean i started this thing with a beer crawl we can even have a beer of the week because i yeah. started with the beer we have to have a beer really but oh, we, we're, we're gonna have beer we'll of the week at the end yeah. it's basically gonna be a whole segment for you to talk about the beer crawl yeah, because uh, you experienced a lot of interesting <laughs> beers uh, <laughs> along the way so We'll definitely get to that. But let's start with Garrett Cole. That was the news that broke uh, pretty late last night on the East Coast, uh, right around peak bar time and networking at the winter meetings. Uh, so that's always nice. But nine years 
$324 million. Garrett Cole goes to the Bronx. It's a staggering number to see. And this came up on Under the Radar this morning. And uh, Ian Kahn, who's a lifelong Yankees fan uh, and regular co-host on that show, of course, he said, it almost feels like Cole is underpaid somehow. Which, when you think about the value he brought the last two seasons in Houston, he has the potential to be underpaid if he's able to replicate a few of those years, especially early in the deal, and have an arc as he progresses through the nine-year deal, similar to what Justin Verlander's done over the past decade or what Max Scherzer's done over the past decade. I mean, this was a, a groundbreaking deal, and it's just fascinating for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would make the argument that Garrett Cole is the best pitcher in baseball, and to have the best pitcher in baseball be a free agent at 29 years old is how you get to these record numbers. And I, I, I right now, am struggling to really figure out how to value players. I'm sort of questioning some some of the established frameworks in terms of dollars per war and supply and demand and how the marketplace actually works. But I will say the market seemed to work really well in this situation in the fact that it wasn't just one or two teams. There were at least three teams that were at the trough that were really going at it. And, um, you know, with the Dodgers, I'm sure – I don't know. I haven't seen a rumor or anything, but I'm sure that they made an offer that was over 300 million. I'm sure the angels got over 300 million. So, uh, pretty amazing to, to give a pitcher that many years. But if you look at the way starting pitchers age, um, you know, if they have multiple pitches and good, you know, the velocity part is actually not as important for a starting pitcher, the way they age. So it's mostly important that they have multiple pitches, uh, that they can kind of emphasize a different, points and kind of have different adjustments they could make in the future. And and so all signs point to him aging well in that regard. And then on top of that, he's never had Tommy John. Uh, he's never really had a major injury. Um, and so you're talking about what looks like the perfect storm uh, for signing a pitcher. Pirates fans are still sitting in a corner just shaking their heads like, <laughs> unbelievable. We traded this guy away and didn't get any franchise changing players back in the return. I mean that that trade just gets worse and worse over time with Colin Moran, Jason Martin, Michael Feliz and Joe Musgrove being the four players that they got uh, a little less than 2 years ago. I mean that was January 13th, 2018. We're not even 2 years removed from that trade between the Astros and Pirates and now Garrett Cole is the highest paid pitcher in baseball, 36 million per year. There is an opt out in the deal after uh, the 2024 season. So if uh, you know things don't work out for whatever reason, or Cole thinks he can hit another big contract in his uh, early mid 30s, then you know that could be something we're talking about a few years from now. Uh, I saw a pretty interesting uh, bit from Todd Zola on Twitter. I think they're called tweets, but uh, he, he wrote the park factors going from Minute Maid Park to Yankee Stadium are virtually a wash. And with the Cole projections for 2020, uh, I think had he returned the Astros, the ERA and WHIP projection that Zola had was a 278 ERA and a .95 WHIP. Uh, going to the Yankees, it's a 282 ERA and a .96 WHIP. I mean, a, a negligible difference in the ratios. As you think about the difference uh, moving into Yankee Stadium, pitching in the AL East, is that in line with how you expect things to unfold? Yeah, I, I, I don't anticipate. There is... Uh, a little bit of a quality of opposition situation, but you know he's been facing Mike Trout and 
Um, you know, there've been decent games, decent offenses. He's, he's gone into Texas a lot. You know, I, I, I think, I think, uh, he's bulletproof. I mean, just look at that, that strikeout rate and that walk rate, you know, even with a 1.2 homers per nine last year, he was so dominant. So I really feel like, you know, this, uh, he's, he's bulletproof, I think. I, and people want, you know, oh, will he keep it up? Or was this like Astro special sauce or something like if there is a special sauce, he's bringing it with him. And then secondly, I have a lot of respect for Matt Blake, uh, the, the the pitching coach hire in New York. They took away from the Indians. The Indians are a pitching factory. Everybody tells me Matt Blake is, is super smart and really good at connecting people with people. So, uh, you know, I, I, I have no, uh, no sort of reservations about, you know, probably making Cole the, the best fantasy pitcher in baseball, too. Yeah, he's he's a first rounder. He's on the short list. Probably Cole and Jacob DeGrom, definitely first rounders in a 12-team league. I, I think you can argue for Justin Verlander in there. I, I don't know if that's a move I would necessarily make, but it's splitting hairs. He's a guy I'm at least thinking about in the later part of round one if Cole and, and, uh, if Cole and DeGrom are both off the board. Let's talk about Steven Strasburg for a moment. I mean, he had an opt-out, he exercised it, and he got a big raise. Seven years, $245 million for Strasburg to stay in D.C. A little salt in the wound maybe for Padres fans who thought that there was a chance that during these winter meetings in San Diego that maybe Strasburg would come home and uh, be a big addition to that rotation. But he ends up staying put and getting $35 million per year. So Cole breaks the Strasburg AAV in about 24 hours. Uh, but this is a pretty big commitment for a guy that has had a lot of difficulty staying healthy. I mean, we talked about Cole as a guy that's been generally very durable. That has not been the case with Strasburg. You look back at 2018, only 130 innings. 2017, he was at 175. 16 and 15 at 147 and 127, respectively. Uh, so this seems very risky based on the duration of the extension, but obviously it was a necessary thing for the Nats to do in order to retain him. Yeah, I wouldn't have given that deal. A little older too. He's thirty-one. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have given that deal. I. I. I think. Um, I think the main thing that creeps me out about seven years and two hundred fifty million to Strasburg is that he's had Tommy John surgery, and once you have had it once, you know, you know the the success rate on the first Tommy John surgery is around ninety percent. The success rate on the second Tommy John surgery is around fifty percent. And that basically means that if he has to go under the knife again for his elbow, he's a 50, 50 shot to pitch again, you know? So that, that worries me. You know, I think that's a, a serious worry. And, you know, it's the second time in his career he's managed 200 innings. So I think, I think it's fair to ask about his durability just in general, even not just the elbow ligament. So, you know, I have a feeling that he'll be overdrafted a little bit next year, too, because the projections all say 200 innings. But, you know, I put the over under on innings for him next year, something more like 150, you know. Yeah, I, that, that's where I'd go to the three year average as a guide, you know, 150, 155, maybe something in that range. Yeah. And if you get more then great, things are, are fine. But he's going to be what a top five pitcher in, in most rooms, I would think. Yeah, it's uh, probably not one that I'm going to uh, do at this price. I did like him a little last year 
you know, as, you know, a secret ace, as a, as a, you know, a later ace. But now if he's going to join that top crew, I, I, uh, I'm not sure I want to invest like that. Oh, we do have some early ADP. 25 leagues already in the books from the NFBC. Strasburg, ninth among pitchers in ADP, 29.2. But it kind of clustered. You got Mike Clevenger, Jack Flaherty, Shane Bieber, and Strasburg all between 24 and 29. Well, uh, there's a little bit of a break before you get down to Blake Snell. That's surprising to me. That's surprising to me. I, w- I would have thought there would have been more inflation. And I think at that price, I'm still, I'm still in. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's wild. So that was a huge signing that happened during the meetings. Uh, another one to talk about is Zach Wheeler getting five years and $118 million from the Phillies. Uh, kind of a similar deal to what Patrick Corbin got uh, a year ago from the Nationals if we're looking for a comp and I, I think with Wheeler you and I have talked about the things we like about him you know the velo uh, the the basic traits that you're looking for in a potential ace Wheeler has them it's just a matter of him kind of putting it all together and getting up one more level of back-to-back seasons where he's been worth at least four wins above replacement for the Mets so kind of looking at it scaling it down from the numbers that Cole and, and Strasburg got it kind of fits into where the market is at right now. And for a lot of teams, that was their best shot at getting someone that could be as impactful in his best seasons as Cole and or Strasburg could be in their more typical ones. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting deal because, you know, uh, I think in years past, he would have gotten like one and 15 uh, from a savvy team like the Rays, you know, um, who would have had a, f- a fix waiting for him. Um, and that would have made a, a lot of sense. But to spend $100 million on a player that probably in order to be worth that has to make an adjustment, I think, made me feel a little bit like it's a possible overpay. You know, I mean, if Wheeler does not change anything, I don't think he's worth $100 million. Yeah, well, I think he kind of breaks even at that price over five years, like if he doesn't get up to Maybe. that next level. But going into Philly, it's a more difficult place to pitch than pitching at City Field. I mean, how much are you worried about that in terms of the change in park factors for his home starts? Yeah, you see a, a fairly large leap in his projected home runs. I mean, uh, other than his uh, injury shortened in 2017, he's mostly had a good home run rate. And um, he's projected right now by Steamer for 1.4 homers per nine. Um, You know, in my stat cast park factors in terms of, you know, how often do high drives turn into homers? um, You know, Philly is surprisingly not like a top five team, but it is a top 10 team. um, And only three slots ahead of New York. So, Interesting that they play closer than people might think in terms of fairness, and they're kind of middle of the pack. Uh, but there's always like a component uh, park factor situation where, you know, if lefties are having an easy time off of um, off of Wheeler, then you know the 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 New York and Philly play differently to different parts of the park. Um, and uh, I'm trying to look at that. Um, well, look at that. Again, uh, Philly, yes, it does play uh, nicer to hitters, but uh, there's not a huge difference between left and right field in Philadelphia. Um, and there there wasn't in New York either. So 
Uh, I, I think uh, maybe there's an opportunity to um, get some return on your investment fantasy-wise in that um, those home run park factors, uh, the home run prediction might be overblown. Um, but I also feel like because we're so savvy to the fact that like, oh, he just needs to throw his fastball high in the zone more um, and uh, maybe like tweak the, the shape of his fastball a little bit and he'll be great. I think there's going to be so much sort of hype around that. And there's going to be so many pieces about, oh, like this is how the Phillies are going to fix Zach Wheeler or whatever, that uh, the price may overinflate. The early price, again, NFBC ADPs to this point, has been really kind of low. 122 overall for the ADP. Oh. Uh, an early pick of 99 <laughs> I think knowing where he's at, even though the perception is that it's very hitter friendly because it is hitter friendly, he's going to jump probably close to where like James Paxton is. I'm looking at James Paxton around pick 90. Uh-huh. So he's in the top 30 among pitchers. I think Wheeler's going to close that gap down. I think that's probably where he settles in. I mean, if you're looking at Paxton versus Wheeler in a quick game of would you rather? Would you rather? Who do you like better for this oh season? Oh my God, that Paxton was, and Wheeler. That was, that was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that one, oh I'm saving God. that cut forever. <laughs> when I have a soundboard, that that cut has a dedicated uh, button. button. <laughs> oh my God, that was death. Um, I'd rather have Paxton. Yeah, I think Paxton is, in some ways, in Steven Strasburg territory from a year ago. I know he hasn't had the one big season that Strasburg previously had before doing it in 2019. But the injuries that have piled up on James Paxton have finally got to the point now where I think you're getting a discount. Yeah. yeah. And if he has that year where he gets to 190 or 200 It'll be great. with the skills on that team, it's going to be a smash pick where you're getting an ace for you know the price of a mid-range sp2 and that's a that's a big game i mean if if you're the kind of person who wants to maybe wait on your rotation this year because you think you're just going to load up on bats those first four to five rounds paxton's probably the kind of guy that you can take as your first pitcher you're going to back him up with some other guys around that tier but he could actually end up returning ace value in these circumstances yeah yeah absolutely uh i absolutely love him as a pick and um, you know, I might rather he be my number two, uh, but you still could use him in a weight situation where um, maybe you do like Nola Paxton, you get a back end top twelve guy, uh, and then add on Paxton. Um, you could you could easily walk out of the room uh, with you know three hundred three hundred fifty innings um, of kind of like a three three ERA. So, um, uh, I, yeah, I think I like Paxton a lot, and I would. I would take him over Wheeler uh, in a heartbeat, I think. Yeah, I think they're, for me, they're similar in value, but I do prefer Paxton uh, at this point as well. Let's talk about Didi Gregorius for a moment. He leaves the Yankees, goes to the Phillies, gets a one-year deal, $14 million, gets reunited with Joe Girardi. Uh, I, I like this fit because I think there were only maybe three or four other places Didi could go where I wasn't going to worry about a massive fall off in power. Of course, people have seen the spray charts by now. Uh, It's all pull side power. And being a lefty in Yankee Stadium, that's an amazing fit. It's the best possible fit for a guy that hits the ball like that. Uh, How well does he fit in Philadelphia, relatively speaking? I mean, if if a healthy Didi Gregorius was going to hit 
25 to 28 home runs for the Yankees in 2020. How many does he hit for the Phillies in 2020 now with that park change? 24 to 27. <laughs> I think, yeah, uh, it's not a bad drop at all. Then. No, I don't think so. And, um, you know, it, 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 leaving uh, New York is going to be, yes, it's going to be an issue. New York has, to right field, has the highest uh, stat cast park factor in baseball. And it's uh, not even close. Like, they're at 1.5, and everybody else is at 1.2 or 1.1. So, um, you know, actually, now that I'm looking at it, of course, um, uh, Cincinnati is second. So it goes Yankees, uh, 1.5, uh, Cincinnati, 1.4, basically. And then there's a, a grouping at 1.1, 1.2 that actually includes uh, Philadelphia. So Philadelphia has the third uh, friendliest park to right field, uh, but it's an order of magnitude lower, you know. Uh, so there will be an effect. Uh, but I just I think it may be overstated, and he's in a fairly uh, friendly park for for his uh, for his power profile. He's in a little bit of a Yasmani Grandal situation from last winter. Where he takes a one year deal. He had back to back seasons where he was worth more than four wins in seventeen and eighteen before uh, having Tommy John. Could bounce back this year and then get that multi year payday a year from now. That wouldn't surprise me. I still think there's a pretty short list of teams that would be interested in part because a lot of organizations have a younger shortstop entrenched at the position. But I think a lot of the same teams that were interested in signing DD this winter are going to then fall back on some short-term replacements and maybe come back to the table uh, next winter. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I could see him ending up on the Yankees again. I think it's a, a fairly good idea for him to do this because, I mean, although I did, you know, projections mostly had him just signing a three-year version of the same deal. So, um, he may be overthinking it and he may have taken, should have taken like a three and 42 as opposed to a one and 14. But, um, at the same time, if you look at his exit velocity numbers at the end of the season, they were through the roof, best exit velocity of his career. And, you know, exit velocity, there's no uh, straight line connecting exit velocity to outcome. So that doesn't mean, you know, he's going to be amazing. But it does mean to me that he was getting healthy at the end of the year and that his numbers were suppressed last year, you know, by, by the fact that he was coming back from Tommy John surgery. So um, I think a healthy year may put him on track to, 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 to have a better deal in the future. Uh, I think he picked the right park. He picked the right situation. Uh, the only problem for us as fantasy owners is shortstop is ridiculously deep. I mean, just ridiculously deep. And if you if you take the position off of it, um, you know, these days a 250, 25 homer hitting bat um, is, I wouldn't say necessarily not playable, but it's it's borderline not playable in shallower leagues. I mean, it's it's um, it's way too dime a dozen. I mean, just think about Freddie Galvis. Freddie Galvis is going to hit 20 homers. Yeah. It looks like he's going to play enough to do it, which is is wild. And he's not going to be that far off a 250s batting average. I mean, he could even reach that level. He's probably more likely to be a 230, 240 type guy. Uh, I think the key the difference, though, between the two is going to be where they hit in their lineups. I think Galvis, because of the low OBP, lower OBP even than Gregorius is more likely to get buried in the bottom third. Uh-huh. I think Didi can kind of float around in the middle third a little more often, drives up those RBI totals, drives up those run score totals a little bit. Uh, maybe not a cleanup guy the way he was for a few years with the Yankees, but probably not sinking quite as far down in the batting order. So I think that's where those counting stats are a little bit safer. 
Yeah, uh, and yeah, I, I, I mentioned Galvis Moore to be like, hey, you know, with the ball the way it is, um, you know, forty power now is you know forty on the twenty eight scouting scale is um, supposedly not good power. I mean, Freddie Galvis was not supposed to hit ten homers at you know in a season, and now he's hitting twenty. Um, you know, with that sort of situation, if that's kind of your baseline for, you know, powerless players, they're going to hit 20 homers, then Didi Gregorius becomes uh, less special. I would think that maybe the true would you rather for me is Didi Gregorius versus Paul DeYoung. Um, and I just think uh, they have a very similar profile, not not going to be an asset on batting average, uh, good power, um, you know, you know, you might get a little bit better batting average from Didi. You're going to get more power from Paul DeYoung. Um, neither is is really that exciting. Uh, so, you know, that's my that's sort of my true. Would you rather? I'm interested. Uh, who would you rather? I want the cheaper of the two because I see it the way you do, where there's so little that separates them. Mm-hmm. If I can get something else, I need when DeYoung is going to come off the board around pick 180 or 190. I'll go ahead and do that and then try to get Didi next time through. He's got an ADP gap of about, looks like 40 or so picks right now. It's almost three rounds yeah. in a 15-team league. I mean, with that point. discount, I want Didi. I think that gap's going to close. I, I think knowing that he's in a hitter-friendly environment, those two are going to be ADP neighbors within the next month. But um, it's also uh, you know fair to think of strategy at the point where those two are on the board. You you may be the last one to need a middle infielder. You know, you, that might be the, the sort of end of the bucket. So you might as well just not pick them until very very late if they're both there because nobody else is likely to pick uh, one of those two for their bench. You know, they're not the kind of high upside players that you put on your bench. They're not a young prospect or, you know what I'm saying? So like, it's very likely that you can, you can, you can just leave them out there for a long time. If you're the last one to pick a shortstop. And in fact, I think that's a, a very viable strategy for this year is to um, punt, punt shortstop basically, because the very bottom uh, shortstops in your league are likely to be Ahmed Rosario Paul DeYoung, Didi Gregorius, Willie Adamas, Jorge Polanco, Bo Bichette, like that's the bottom of the barrel. And uh, there's a lot of exciting names there. There's there's durable, uh, you know, durable, nice players like DeYoung and Didi. And then there's even upside in Bo Bichette. And, and I would say Willie Adamas has some upside. So uh, if that's the bottom of the barrel, man, uh, it's a stack position. Speaking of kind of what looks like replacement level power, at least from a, a fantasy perspective. Nomar Mazzara is on the move. He goes to the White Sox. Steel Walker gets traded back to Texas. That's an 80 grade name oh and a God. perfect player to put in Texas. Walker, like that's Walker, Texas Ranger. It was just, yeah, it's, it's perfect. It's flawless. <laughs> you, you could not have put a better player on that team from a name standpoint. Uh, but Nomar Mazzara goes to the White Sox and we've, been pretty excited about what they've been doing all along this offseason and he's an upgrade over what they had in right field even if he's still an average ish or a little below average in terms of what he actually brings to the table the White Sox are also getting the possibility that he's a, a relative late bloomer not because he's old he's only 24 but because he's been in the big leagues for four full seasons the barrel rate has crept up in each of the last two seasons from six and a half percent back in 2017 to 8.5% last year, or 2018, and now 10.7% in the real last season, 2019. So he's 
making some progress that hasn't necessarily been visible in the basic counting stats. How much do you like this move for the White Sox? Because uh, they get Mazar for two years. He's a free agent after 2021, and it keeps them away from uh, some of the free agent corner outfielders that had a qualifying offer attached, you know, like a Marcelo Zuna, and it keeps them from making, you know, a multi-year commitment up front, maybe to, you know, a Yasiel Puig or a Nick Castellanos. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you mentioned Yasiel Puig because that's why Nomar Mazar got traded for a virtual... Um, uh, I don't want to be rude. Uh, I don't think that Walker's a great prospect. No, he's he's not highly regarded at all. I mean, there were there were plenty of people who know baseball pretty well who were like, who is Steel Walker? Yeah. Like, why did they do that? I mean, uh, that, our friend James well, Anderson, we wired. <laughs> he has a top 400 prospect list and Steel Walker's not on it. Oh, my God. That's a big list. 400 fantasy prospects. And this is a guy that was drafted out of Oklahoma, I think, in the second round of the 2017 draft. So he's a little old and he hasn't been crushing the lower levels of the minor leagues. So for that to be the, the return for Nomar Mazzara was a little bit jarring when you think about how good people expected Nomar Mazzara to be right. when his career began. It's disappointment is always kind of relative to where our expectations are. And for Nomar Mazzara, our expectations have just been at a level that he's been unable to reach so far does the change of scenery, not necessarily because of park factors, but just does getting to work with some new coaches and, and just be around some new teammates potentially give him some lift? Is there anything about this move that makes you more optimistic about him in 2020 than you would have been had he stayed put in Texas? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to set it up where, you know, there's all these negative things. There's, there's Yasiel Puig is uh, a, a great uh, option, you know, that may not cost that much money, you know. Uh, corner outfielders are fairly available. You can get them. Uh, Nomar Mazar has never put up a win of value in Fangraphs. He has terrible defense. He doesn't walk much. You know, he might be a first baseman with the glove. He's never actually hit above league average in terms of league and park adjusted uh, stats. So, you know, there's a lot of reason to be down on this, but. I can't. I can't quit him. I can't quit him. I, I like him. I, I I see. I like his swing. Uh, I think he has some untapped power. Yes, and I don't bat an eye at all with at when I look at Steamer and it projects him for uh, a batting average he's never put up and uh, twenty seven homers when he's never hit more than twenty. And I'm like, yeah, that's who I think he is. I think he's a. Uh, 275 30 homer hitting guy um so i just i don't want to just like sort of confirm my own bias and just be like yes that's right because i think it's right and yay you know but just on projections he's going to be a valuable player and i think there's still an opportunity uh to do a little better than that and maybe because of the trade he'll start to creep up ADP wise too. Again, it's not because people are going to look at guaranteed rate field, which still is does not roll off the tongue for me. <laughs> it's not because it's a better spot to hit than whatever they call the ballpark in Texas. Nomar Mazzara has fallen outside the top 200 in terms of ADP. And when players who are still relatively young get that opportunity to play every single day and show some even small underlying signs of growth, 
I'm interested. And I think it, it, if he'd stayed healthy for a full season in 2019, we would have seen better counting stats that we'd ever seen before. We would have seen probably 25 home runs instead of the 20 that he hit in each of his first three seasons. We would have probably got into the 85 range for RBIs, which would have been his second best total. He had 101 back in 2017. And he already last season scored a, a career high, 69 runs, despite all that missed time. So he probably would have been in the 80 to 85 range there. I also wonder, because of the the makeup of the, the White Sox roster, if they still will go after a veteran corner outfielder because they could pretty easily justify, you know, letting Mazzara be a regular DH. Like they, they have a path to do that. Whereas Texas was always a little bit crowded in the outfield, had some older players. They don't want to put out there a lot that kind of made Mazzara have to play the outfield a lot more. And he's getting further along in the aging curve. So you don't necessarily worry as much about saying, Hey, he's a 22 year old that we're DHing. Teams don't generally want to do that. It's gonna be 25 in April. So maybe you can have that, that more realistic expectation that he's only a part-time outfielder, but he's mostly a DH. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they're necessarily flush with outfielders in that organization though. So um, I think that DH is likely going to be a rotating cast of, you know, trying to keep our healthy, our players healthy, but there is a way that you can maybe lessen the impact of Mazzara's uh, poor outfield defense by, uh, judiciously DHing him, DHing him uh, behind a fly ball pitcher or fly ball hitting team or whatever. So um, I definitely do think that the DH will uh, add some value to the, having a sort of open DH situation. Will have some add some value for the White Sox and for you know, their usage of Mazzara. But um, I don't think that they they hope to uh, DH him full time. Let's keep the grinding through the moves that have gone down over the past week. Dylan Bundy. Gets a fresh start. He gets traded to the Angels. Uh, Isaac Matson was among the prospects shipped back to Baltimore in that deal. Uh, Bundy's one of those guys. I think we've been waiting for a couple of years for him to get a chance outside of Baltimore. Getting out of the AL East is a good thing, but just getting out of Camden Yards when you have a, a home run issue that's been as extreme as Bundy the last two seasons can only help. He's given up 70 home runs. The last two seasons, 41 in 2018, 29 in 2019. And that's for a guy who wasn't maxing out innings wise. He was at 171 in 2018 and 161 and two thirds in 2019. Uh, what's your interest level in Bundy now that he's no longer an Oriole? It's fairly high, actually. I mean, I know the numbers are just terrible on results, but you just have to think that he'll at least give up fewer homers when he's away from Baltimore. It's going to be a fairly big difference for him. And then I do think that there's a, a slight bit of untapped potential um, in him in that when I look at his pitches, uh, I see a lot of good. I see uh, a lot of ride on the, on the fastball. I see a ton of movement um, on his power change. Uh, the slider gets great results and, um, I think it's, it's, it's a great pitch for him. So you've got those three pitches. The sinker even has decent numbers. So maybe you kind of mix that in judiciously. And, um, I'd say the curve is, as a representative pitch. So you've got a five pitch pitcher and each of their, each of those pitches has interesting movement. That's uh, a recipe just by itself, uh, for potential, uh, profit as a fancy owner and for potential breakout seasons because if you have five pitches the, there's a high likelihood that 
you can alter the way you use them um, and, and and have a different outcome. Whereas if you have two or three pitches, there's not as many permutations uh, to your to your mix. There's not as many possible things you can do. You know, um, so those two facts to me, uh, the the park factors and the, the, his pitches, he has good pitches with good movement, and he's five of them. Um, mean to me that he's a very decent um, sort of late game play, uh, AL only sort of three to five dollar type pitcher, uh, you know, even 15 team league bench pitcher uh, play. I, I don't want the hype to get too big and make him an actual pitcher that people are spending close to 10 bucks on in AL onlys or, um, you know, putting, you know, in the middle of their, their pitching roster in 15 teams. But I, I do like him as a, as a flyer type. Yeah. It's, it's not a oh, gross Dylan Bundy anymore. Yeah. It's, Hey, this could be interesting either for home streaming or possibly for a bit more, uh, especially in those mid-sized mixed leagues and anything deeper than that. There's definitely room for him to play, in those formats one thing i also wanted to mention that's interesting is that you know it used to be in the past if you play in the west you you say oh there's a lot of good pitchers parks but there's also texas and i wanted to mention this with mazaro like it's very good for mazaro to get out of texas right now because i think texas next year is going to play much more neutral the biggest part of texas's outsized park factors and the, the 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 offense that gets that happens in texas the biggest part of that is how hot it was and uh the new stadium has a dome so that's going to be more temperature regulated so it's going to be a much more even-handed um uh, situation there in terms of park factors so now you're talking about uh he's going to pitch in anaheim he's going to pitch in oakland uh he's going to pitch in texas and uh and houston plays fairly you know pretty fair so that's a really different situation than pitching in Fenway uh, with its unique park factors, uh, you know, Yankee Stadium and Baltimore most of the time. Yeah, and the Rangers just kind of staying on them for a minute, thinking about the pitchers they have signed over the past few days. They add Jordan Lyles, they add Kyle Gibson. They've done really well in that chunk of free agent pitching the last couple of off seasons. The Mike Minor deal has been great for them. Lance Lynn was outstanding a year ago. Uh, if the park becomes you know more neutral, that gives the pitching a lift as well. So I'm looking at where some of the the new Rangers have been going, and by that again, I mean Gibson and Lyles specifically. And I'm wondering if maybe this whole rotation is a little bit underpriced in early drafts. Yes, I would I would say that uh, you know. A lot of people just want to stay away from uncertainty and um, and and or may not even uh, realize that Texas is getting into a new stadium or, or uh, may think that it, it'll play similarly to the last one. Uh, so I do think there's just an opportunity there in terms of an information gap possibility. Uh, but also the Rangers, uh, there's a there's a thing here. I don't think a lot of people know that the Rangers had a. Uh, I would say a tight relationship uh, have been working with uh, driveline for a couple of years. And uh, I think they have a really underrated sort of pitch design, major league pitching coach um, analytics analytics based um, pitch coaching situation there um, that uh, that is going to play out. I mean, 
obviously they've they've had some success with Lynn and Miner. I would say that um, I wouldn't be surprised if Gibson has a good season uh, next year for them. Um, and at the same time, I would like to say that mm, I'm a little bit uh, suspicious of a lot of them just because their stuff isn't amazing, you know. Uh, Gibson has five pitches in, in command, so he fits in this sort of Bundy bucket. But if you're going to have to pay established pitcher prices, and you're pitching, you're paying, you know, five to ten dollars for him uh, in AL only, or you're really putting Gibson, you know, in your starting lineup, um, then I'm actually a, a little bit nervous. Yeah, I, what I think it comes down to for me is just being open minded about them if the market continues to leave them where they are. And I just looked up their ADPs just again to run through what's happening so far. Lance Lynn, one thirty three. If you just if you just drafted based purely on the skills from last season, he'd go earlier than that. Like there's yeah, no doubt about that. Underrated. Mike Miner at one sixty five. Uh, Jordan Lyles three fifty six. And Kyle Gibson at three sixty three. Well, handwriting hey, was so bad that I almost couldn't read it. I almost, I, that's so bad. I would. I at that price, I like Gibson. I like Gibson better than Lyles. So I'm pretty surprised that there he's that dirt cheap. I mean, maybe people are having a little bit of Kyle Gibson fatigue um, because he he's really only had that one great, maybe two great seasons. But um, I'm into him. So at that price, I love him. If he's a dollar pitcher in AL only or a $2 pitcher, yes, give me. I would guess for the sake of AL labor, you're looking at closer to five or seven. But I think I still I think I still like him in there. I mean, uh, he's a I would say he has a slightly higher floor than yeah, he has a higher floor than Dylan Bundy, uh, a better projection than Dylan Bundy. Um and a similar ceiling. I mean, the things that I said about Dylan Bunny are true about Kyle Gibson. That generally, this, the the movement numbers are good. He's got five pitches. You know, he can move them in and out. So, um, I, I would say that they're very similar. And I would uh, I would take the cheaper of the two, but I would I would roster both of them. Yeah, just a, a group of pitchers that if you kind of think back to how you played four or five years ago, Texas pitchers were kind of an easy avoid when they didn't have uh, aces. You know, like, they had some terrible staffs. Like Darvish and you know Cole Hamels like were fine, but a lot of their back end guys for uh, a while were just untouchable. That's not really the case anymore. They definitely got something figured out. Oh, did you say Hirado? Yeah, so bad. <laughs> there you guys, Jush. Chichi. Oh, yeah. Chichi. Oh, Lord. My heart. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Cole Hamels, uh, he gets a one-year deal with the Braves. Uh, kind of an interesting little signing. They, they need innings. They you know, Julio Tehran probably going to move on as a free agent. Not a lock, but just seems like something that might happen, depending on the offers he's getting. But one year, $18 million for Hamels. Basically, the qualifying offer that the Cubs didn't give him. Uh, what do you see for, for Hamels going into Atlanta? Is last year kind of a sign of the beginning of the end for him? Or do you think there's still... Uh, some sub four ERA and kind of better than league average whip potential over a lot of innings in him. I like him, and I have a feeling that he's uh, with the projections for like a four three ERA, being thirty five years old, being on a one year deal. Um, I have a feeling that people are going to sleep on him. I have a feeling that he's uh, you know 
going to be in a group where I don't know I'd like to I'd like to hear his ADPs where, where is he going because I feel like if he's going against a group of you know oh this guy could be good uh you know he's going to be undervalued he's his one of his ADP neighbors is a massive potential hype guy especially with Grandal being with the White Sox Ronaldo Lopez is right there. Oh. 293 is oh. the ADP for Cole Hamels in 25 drafts to this point. Cole Hamels every day. Cole Hamels a million times over Ronaldo Lopez. Here's a rapid fire. Here's a bunch of the guys that are going ahead of him. I'm curious if any of these guys are guys that you actually would take over Cole Hamels. These guys are going earlier right now. Dakota Hudson. Nope. A- Adrian Hauser. Uh, nope. Anthony Duscafani. Nope. Cole Yanni Chirinos. Cole Hamels. Cole Hamels. Ah, uh, okay. Yanni Chirinos. Maybe. You got me, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dylan Cease. That one's really interesting because that's the, that's kind of the name that was in my head where I think I would still take Cole Hamels. Obviously not in a keeper league. I would rather have Cease a million times. And, I, and I'm fairly excited about Dylan Cease. If he can stop cutting his fastball, I think it'll turn into more ride. Uh, and then he could be a really, really exciting pitcher. And I know that he personally wants to cut the ride on his fastball, so he's aware of this issue. I mean, he wants to cut the cut on his fastball uh, down, so I, I, I know that he's aware of that issue, and that makes me hopeful. Uh, but he's a little bit more of the sort of, you know, the, the what is it, the, the birds in the bush, the, two, the bird in the hand. Who's in the bush? Oh, the bird, bird in the is in the hand. Versus two in the bush? Yeah. Yeah, bird in the hand versus two in the bush. Uh, Cease is the two in the bush and Hamels is the bird in the hand. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll just accept that as something I understand. <laughs> I also like Dylan Cease, if that's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it depends a little bit on the, on the, on what your staff looks like. If you've been taking a lot of risks, then maybe it's time to take Hamels and kind of lock down some okayness. Uh, but if you haven't been taking lit risks, obviously Cease um, has more upside. Yeah, again, you're you're definitely a position where you could end up with both and other guys in that cluster. But that seems like a very low price uh, for Cole Hamels. Uh, Michael Pineda goes back to the Twins, so that's pretty interesting that he stays put. Uh, Pineda, okay, we've we've had a, a long-standing up and down sort of relationship with him, yeah. and he's still. In the last four seasons that he's pitched at the big league level, has been unable to finish with an ERA under four. Last year had a 116 whip, a lot of strikeouts, 140 Ks and 146 innings. It, things are are all there in terms of the the pieces. Home runs are always going to be part of what you get from him. Uh, do you like the fit with him staying in Minnesota? I do, I do. Uh, they've done a really great job of of, of you know making him a Make him into a great tunneler, and he tunnels really well. I think they're doing a really good job of getting the most out of him. I think uh, he's just a flawed guy that's going to give up home runs. That's the, the the true constant through his whole career. And a uh, little shout-out to Paul Spores, nickname for him, uh, Michael Pinata. Uh, that's there, really good. There is some Pinata in him, and there always will be, I think, unless um, they really dejuice the balls next year. So, uh, you know, if there, if the ball is dejuiced, I think he could be an amazing play because if that home run rate, you know, is disproportion- disproportionately goes down compared to other people's, um, he could have a really exciting season, I think. Uh, 
But still has some time left on a suspension, so he's going to miss, I think, 39 more games. So that ends up being about eight starts, roughly. That's uh, significant, you know, and it means that if you buy him, you got to have space for him on your bench for a while. What would the rules be in labor? Could I? Could you put him on the bench? A suspended, suspended? player, you could move out of your lineup. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, but still, uh, you know, if you have a shallow bench situation, it, it's going to be difficult to to roster him, I think. And in terms of projections, they are not fun. So, you know, if you're a straight projectionist, like, you know, 4-7 ERA for, for Pineda. So I, I see reasons to avoid him and possibly, um, you know, just try to be early on him, you know, buy him, you know, get him off the waiver wire two weeks into the season or something. Um, but... Uh, He's not as terrible as some people think. No, nah, he's still just going to be 31 in January, so he's a bit younger even than I thought. I thought he'd be like 34 because it feels like he's been around forever. Broke in for the first time way back in 2011. With yeah, the oh my God, that uh, was that trade. It was uh, Montero. Jesus Montero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there was there was a real feeling for for a while in there that you know, especially when how long Pineda was hurt in 2012 and 2013 that. Uh, both teams had somehow lost the trade. <laughs> <laughs> it, it did seem like lose lose, but the yeah. Yankees ended up getting the the win in that one. Yeah, they got a they got a potential. They got, I would say, you know, good 400, 500, uh, 400 uh, productive innings out of them. Yeah, uh, had to wait longer than expected, but ended up being a pretty nice payoff compared to what they probably would have got had they held on to Jesus Montero. Uh, just a footnote here. Alex Avila signed with the Twins. Kind of interesting because I think it just means Mitch Garver plays more. That was likely to happen anyway with Jason Castro being a free agent. But the fact that they signed a guy that really doesn't play a lot and has had multiple concussions, I think bodes well for Garver's uh, push to remain a top five catcher in 2020. Yeah, I would, I would expect his you know, per at-bat power to go down. But the playing time to rise to sort of meet it. And, um, you know, I would expect him to hit sort of like 25-ish homers and not uh, not really skip a beat. Uh, let's talk about some more pre-meeting stuff. This this trade, I think, will always be known as the slap <laughs> trade. Uh, Blake Snell, if you didn't get to uh, you know see the reaction yourself or hear the reaction yourself, was streaming online when he found out the Rays traded Tommy Pham and Jake Cronenworth to San Diego. For Xavier Edwards and Hunter Renfro, uh, Blake Snell uh, was not happy in the moment upon learning that that deal happened, which I think was really above anything else, just a, a, a an expression of disappointment that Pham was leaving. I, I think Pham uh, is one of those players that maybe has earned the respect of his peers in the clubhouse. You know, one of those kinds of things where it's like, oh man, I like playing with this guy. He's a good player. He prepares, he plays hard. I want to have this guy on my team. He's got an edge to him. He's a, he's, you know, it's a, he's an, he's an uplifter. You know, sometimes he's a rabble rouser and sometimes he causes uh, situations, but he's uh he's an energetic guy that, that, you know, just standing next to him, you, you kind of feed off his energy. And I wonder if the chip on his shoulder will get even bigger. Now that the rays have flipped him to San Diego, you know, going to another new team, uh, not being wanted just seems like the kind of thing that, that motivates Tommy Pham. It's a great trade for San Diego just from the, hey, 
they need guys that get on base. Pham is uh, an underrated player. I think you and I both like him. We talked about him a few weeks ago as someone that probably deserved to be going earlier in some of the very early uh, drafts that we've we've been a part of. But Xavier Edwards, long-term, is a really fascinating player. So you can kind of understand why both sides made this deal. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Rays win in the long run, just based on the way we evaluate players in the long run. And the wild cards here, I mean, are the other players involved, Cronenworth and, and Renfro. Renfro is kind of where I want to begin because the Rays have this knack. It's, it's one of their specialties of taking players that you think have kind of just leveled off and unlocking a little more. And usually those players aren't around very long, so Hunter Renfro's time in Tampa Bay might be you know, one season or two seasons at most. But I'm curious to see if they can push him up to 40 homers or maybe they can combine the 2019 power with better average and OBP. Like, What do you think the tweak is going to be potentially with Hunter Renfro? Why, why did the Rays take him back as a part of this deal. I think Edwards was a key, but I don't think Renfro is insignificant here. You know, there's a, a lot of people that point to Renfro's splits as evidence that, you know, there's um, upside in him that, uh, that, uh, that remains. And it has to do with the fact that he hurt his foot. And, you know, if you look at where what he was doing uh, in March, uh, you know March through June, uh, he pretty much had like a near 400 ISO and uh, did a ton of his damage, a 600 slugging, you know, basically for those three months, and uh, and then he hurt his foot, and then his ISO kind of tanked, and he went from a 361 ISO in the first half to a 138 ISO in the second half. Um, so that's a compelling narrative. I would like to point out that just from a real baseball perspective, Tommy Pham also had an injury and held up the deal, um, even went to his elbow and his splits. There's a little bit of a difference pre and post injury, uh, but he was way more valuable even given that injury. Plate discipline, having plate discipline means that when things aren't going great for you on the power end, you're still giving your team value. And, uh, that to me, uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to just be like, I think it feels a little bit like faith casting to be like, okay, uh, with a healthy foot Renfro is going to have a a 600 slugging. Um, I'm not sure that I can, I can uh, give my sort of stamp of approval to that argument, but I, I do, I would, did want to represent that that argument is out there. And at least on some level, it, it represents his upside. It's kind of like a, 250 average 600 slugging just power monster yeah i i would imagine that's where the rays go to draw the line on him i don't think they see much more than that because that seems impossible maybe this is the the bird in the hand for two in the bush where they think xavier edwards is going to be a four or five win player for multiple years at his peak they'll have him for you know the opportunity for having for seven years they do what teams generally do uh, maybe they just saw like, okay, you know what, like Fam, yeah, maybe he's a little or even a lot better than Renfro right now, but this is an opportunity to make our team a lot better, and we feel like we can pick up the gap between Fam and Renfro with other tweaks on our roster. Edwards is, you know, fits the Tampa Bay uh, stereotype perfectly. They love hit tool. They love people who can make contact. 
and that's something that Edwards really does well. You know, looking at his, you know, he does he never put up a hundred ISO. He's got fifty five percent ground ball rates. It doesn't look like he's going to develop power. But I was talking to JJ Cooper from Baseball America, and he agreed. I don't think he's going to develop much power. But he was like, look at Freddie Galvis's early, you know, production in the in the minor leagues, and this is Xavier Edwards is very similar statistically to Freddie Galvis, just. Uh, slightly better in terms of contact rate. Uh, definitely better in terms of strikeout and contact rate. But in terms of isolated isolated power and ground ball rates, you know, it's a fa- like a fair clone. Uh, so even though Xavier Edwards has hit one home run in the minor leagues, it's possible that he has terrible power and he comes up and hits 15 to 18 home runs a year in the major leagues. I mean, you see the scouting grades that Fangraphs has on them, too. They got 40 present raw power and 45 future raw power. That's something. I mean, if I'm trying to figure out a roto comp for Xavier Edwards long term, I'm probably thinking, like, what, Trey Turner is the best case scenario? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it depends a little bit on how much they let him steal uh, and how much he how much that's uh, a package that's going to come with them all the way, but uh, it's 80 speed. So, uh, you know, it should be like that. And, uh, you know, that's another difference between him and Galvis, actually. Uh, Galvis never really had that speed. So, but uh, I would say like sort of baseline uh, is 2017 Freddie Galvis. So I definitely think that Xavier Edwards can have a season like that. 255, 12 homers, 14 uh, stolen bases, maybe make it 275 uh, on the batting average. I think Freddie got, uh, uh, he can definitely do that. But in terms of Turner with 80 speed, it's a possibility. Yeah, I'm just not, I'm not quite sure he's going to have Trey Turner power. But. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to buy into a scouting report when you see that one. <laughs> yeah. That one home run. Yeah. Like you're really, like you're really testing yourself. I think as a scout when you're like, no, I, I see, See 40, 45 right power, and it's just not there yet. It's going to get there. We think he's going to get stronger, but he's really young too. So I would assume you're projecting some physical maturation to be a factor that brings up the pop. But you you, you brought up the the fan grade the the grades on on Xavier Edwards, and uh, yeah, the raw power is forty forty five, but game power is twenty, mm-hmm. and future game power is thirty. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean it. it it almost like my, first, my initial reaction is it's not going to play. Like he can't be a major leaguer because if you look at uh you know qualified major leaguers, so to people that, that hit enough in the the bottom of the ISO rung, uh, there's only one guy with a sub point ninety uh, ISO. That was Yolmer Sanchez. And he just got released. Mm-hmm. You know, so if he has Yolmer Sanchez power, it may not it may not be there for him. But if he can play uh, shortstop. Um, and there's any sort of power growth. Elvis Andrews and Jose Iglesias and Brandon Crawford all had sort of like 0.12-ish uh, ISOs and, and were regulars. Um, so I think Elvis Andrews is my um, outcome for Xavier Edwards. And that does seem like more like a median sort of thing, whereas Trey Turner is like pie in yeah. the sky, what you're yeah. hoping if you have him in a keeper or a dynasty league. Uh, it's a couple more moves to talk about. Let's talk about Omar Narvaez going to the Brewers. I think there was this snap reaction, and I was 
messaging you behind the scenes because I, I wrote a piece for the Athletic about it. But there was a snap reaction that because Omar Narvaez is a bad defensive catcher, that it's not a good move. And the fact of the matter is, like replacing Yasmani Grandal. I mean, Grandal's kind of a unicorn, especially in this free agent market. You're not going to find a guy that hits like he does, gets on base like he does, and frames the way he does. That just doesn't exist. You have to choose one or the other. And I think by trading for Narvaez, the Brewers basically got a, a version of a catcher who hits as much like Yasmani Grandal as anybody else they could get. And they get him for multiple years. Uh, through the 2022 season, He's much more affordable. You can make up the runs you were saving with Grandal's defense elsewhere. So to find a catcher, or at least a part-time or large-side platoon catcher that hits that much, I think makes this a pretty good fit, especially with the move into Miller Park. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had bottom 8% exit velocity, Omar Nevarez, and the barrel rate is not good. And the X Wobacon is not good. Uh, so it's a little bit it's a little bit tough to actually see, I think, personally, what the Brewers are thinking here. Um, you know, the projection is for I guess a league average bat. Maybe they just wanted the league average guy for you know not much, but I'm not sure he'll hit twenty homers again. I think he's got a shot at it because I think the playing time is going to be there. Even if he's moving around a little bit, plays maybe more first base potentially than Grandal did. It depends on how well he takes the position. But I think the key for me, the the blue ink on his page was a real concern. It was one of the first things people were sending me screenshots of uh, when I I started to say, okay, this is kind of interesting. They're like, well, he doesn't hit the ball hard. Very true. He doesn't hit the ball hard. But he has this, this weird thing. He uses the opposite field pretty well. The power is almost entirely to that pull side, but he's a pretty good hitter, strikes out less than 20% of the time, and he has a lot of balls clustered as opposite field. They're basically flares, just balls that he dumps over the left side of the infield or into short center, and those are really low exit velocity hits that pull down that average exit velocity number and make it look worse than it really is. I, I think that might be part of what's going on with Narvaez. It's possible it's strategy because there's definitely something called the donut hole. Um, if you look at st- at this at Statcast, um, you know all the you know the stuff that people are chasing are the 95 mile an hour, you know, 20 degree launch angle uh, type hits, and that's that's where a bunch of red is. But the red uh, has, you know creates a sort of uh, circle, and then there's another red piece uh, that's low exit velocity, low angle. Uh, but not not super low angle, you know, but like sort of 10 to 15 degrees. And those hits uh, are hits, but I think mostly in terms of strategy, in terms of hitting coaching, in terms of um, what you look for when you acquire hitters, mostly you, you think those are um, luck, you know, that, that those are just uh, things that happen and you don't want to aim for them. But if he is honestly aiming for that and he wants that to happen and he can repeat that skill uh yeah i could see him being undervalued yeah that was sort of the hypothesis i had is like maybe they see something the brewers because this was a two-year sort of thing where his x stats uh have just not necessarily supported what he has done as a hitter and it's the same thing as like when a when a pitcher induces a lot of soft contact right there's there's something there that's a skill and if you're not missing a ton of bats you're you're worried about how 
much things can fluctuate, but you you look at that and say there, there's something going on there. I would say it's kind of like Omar Narvaez's StatCast page is basically the inverse of CJ Crone's StatCast page. Like you see red ink all over CJ Crone's StatCast page, and in back-to-back seasons, good teams have been willing to part with him, which is really strange, right? Like it, it just it's counterintuitive when we realize that hitting the ball hard is awesome. But right. it, it's just like there could be some things with Crone that don't quite work for how teams are looking at players. And I think there are some things that happen with guys that are, are lower EV players that we looking at stat cast on the outside would be kind of scared off by that teams are looking through and saying maybe, you know, we, we'd prefer red ink to blue given the circumstances, but the blue ink doesn't matter as much because of these types of things. And I, I wonder if that's where we're at with like these kinds of players. Yeah, it's possible. And it's possible that the Luis Castillo or Luis Urias um, uh, acquisition for the Brewers uh, fits a, a, a trend then, you know, because, you know, Urias's stat cast uh, numbers are also underwhelming. So, um, and I, and I wonder if there's a sort of traditional scouting element to it, because when we're the way that you talk about Narvaez, the way we've been talking about him, it strikes me that it's possible that he has like two swings, you know, he has the, you know, pull power swing that if the ball's inside on the inside half of the plate and up maybe, or inside and middle, uh, he puts the pull power swing on it and takes it deep and otherwise is looking to put his sort of inside out swing, uh, and go the other way. And if that's true, uh, and, and, you know, Kevin Euclid always told me that, you know, he thinks that batters have to have multiple swings because it's hard uh, to, to use the same exact swing to get to all nine sort of quadrants of the, of the, um, of the, of the strike zone to get to all the different sort of spots in the strike zone. So um, maybe it's a sort of traditional scouting element. That's like, yeah, CJ Crone, just like a pull power blasted guy uh, that, uh, you know, is exploitable loan away and, and high and away, you know, uh, because he's, he's got one thing and he does it. Whereas Narvaez not as exploitable because he's at least got these two different swings and he can do something on the inner half and he can do something on the outer half. Yeah, I think this is also under the umbrella of valuing hit tool a certain way. I think yeah. that's kind of what's going on here. Luis Urias, definitely a hit tool sort of guy. Uh, the player I thought of with Urias recently as I was writing some things up was Jorge Polanco because Jorge Polanco had this big step forward power-wise. I know there was a PED suspension in there too, and um, it's not like taking PEDs, getting caught. You know, you, you just like lose the effects of them. You can get stronger and maintain that potentially. But he had this big exit velo jump from 17 and 18 to 2019. Like he was under 84 miles per hour in the previous two seasons and got up to 87. And there's a lot of hit tool there as well, where the average was safe and we liked him because he could steal a few bases. You know, the steals kind of went away when the power ticked up. But that's sort of the what could he be in 2020 that I was starting to come to with Luis Urias thinking about how much he's going to play and being in a hitter friendly environment. And again, like if, if the whole field, if most of the people out there are looking at certain things and applying it all kind of the same way, they're still likely to make mistakes. Even as, as helpful as StatCast data is, it's still relatively new. There are still going to be things that we, we think are important that aren't, or things that we get tricked by in some of those surface numbers, especially. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think that the the last two aspects of the game that are we are worst at 
um, valuing and putting a number on and that we may potentially never be amazing at putting a number on. Those two things are hit tool and defense. And I know we've made some strides with outs above average and stat cast and in the outfield, but infield defense, even even as they were, I know they're working on it and as they're, they're probably ready to, to announce something soon. Um, you know, I'm a little skeptical because there are so many components. And I think there's so many components to both hit tool and defense infield defense where you've got, you know, micro positioning where the player might take a half step or something, uh, see something, uh, you've got staying in front of the ball hands, then you've got transfer to the, from the, the, the glove to the hand you've got, you know, it, it double clutch is Hawkeye really going to be able to, to catch the Miguel Andrew hard double clutch, uh, because that's a fairly fast movement of the hand, you know, uh, you know, does he double clutch? Does he, do, does he not? Then you've got arm strength, arm accuracy, and you've got to separate arm strength and arm accuracy away from, uh, what the, the, uh, first baseman is doing with his glove. You know, you got to kind of pull tease out the first baseman aspect of it. So I think uh, infield defense, we are years and years and years away from having a good number, even if we are going to make some progress this year. And uh, hit tool, I think, because of the conversation we're having, is similar. You can't just say he has a good strikeout rate, he has a good hit tool, uh, because of the things we're talking about. How did he get to that strikeout rate? What? How many? How much? How much variability is there in a swing? How much ba- uh, sort of command of the barrel is there how much uh, sort of uh how, how does this plate discipline work into uh and work with his uh, with his ability to make contact um you know you could probably get to a good strikeout rate with great plate discipline and not a great hit tool so you know i think narvaez is a great example he has league average strikeout rate but if he truly does have two swings uh, then he's ahead of a lot of other people. That's that shows more bat control and more hit tool than uh, than you know other people that have lower strikeout rates. Right. Again, just trying to figure it out and trying to understand why a team that had a very different player catching for them a year ago yeah. traded for a guy that if you said doesn't frame, doesn't stack cast. <laughs> yeah, like try try to predict a guy they would trade for. He would have been on a list of 10, no higher than 10th for me. So like, hmm, maybe I'm like, I, I, I'm humbled all the time by what teams do and outcomes of players. And that's what makes what we do. Uh, How so often fun. we're wrong. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to, to I love the people who play gotcha. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I was wrong once. Yeah. I'm like, dude, like you've never been wrong. <laughs> I I take a lot more L's uh, than W's. Yeah. I, I know it. Uh, the key is just to keep shifting that balance in the right direction. Uh, Tom Murphy is going to play a lot more in Seattle now. It's just kind of like the, the Mitch Garver thing, relatively speaking, where they're going to bring somebody in to work with them, or maybe they're going to use uh, Austin Nola some behind the plate. You know, We'll kind of see what they do. But Tom Murphy hits the ball hard. He, he's kind of like the opposite, where it's like the framing looks good, Hard contact is there, but he strikes out a ton, doesn't walk much. Uh, interesting, though, for, for our purposes, and especially in leagues where you got to start two catchers. Might be a batting average drain, but could basically do you know Mike Zanino-type things uh, without previous Mike Zanino prices. I know Mike Zanino's yeah. falling off now, but there was a point a couple of years ago when people were throwing... Mike Zanino up as like a top 10 sort of catcher. I know it because I was one of those people. Um, so yeah. Tom Murphy's like a 20 to 25 range catcher that might get you a good amount of power 
Uh, yeah, I think he's fairly interesting in two catcher leagues. I think he could be a really good one. I, I know. I think he's going to really play, um, even if they, you know, add another catcher, or, you know, talk about splitting time or whatever it is. I, I think he's going to play because the pitchers like throwing to him, you know. And if the pitchers like throwing to you, and you're kind of a rebuilding team, then you are going to play because you're going to help develop that pitching staff. And I think, you know, he hasn't really. He last year was the first time he got regular playing time. Uh, so he showed the power, you know, I think the strikeout rate is, uh, where the upside is. So if you give him a second year of just all the play appearances he can get, there's an outside chance he could strike out like 28% of the time. And if he did, uh, he would be a fairly valuable catcher. If you could get that down to 27, 28%, he could hit 230, 240 and hit 25 bombs. So now you're talking borderline, you know, back end deep league first catcher and definitely like an asset if you got him for you know three to five bucks or you know that sort of deal yeah very late round pick uh, one last move to talk about before we get to beer of the week the giants basically bought uh, last year's first round pick from the angels will wilson who went 15th overall back in june he goes to san francisco along with zach cozart and the 12.7 million dollars that zach cozart was going to be paid in 2020 uh, player to be named later or cash eventually will go back the other way in that deal. Pretty interesting to see the Giants uh, make that move. I mean, they could also, if Cozart's healthy enough to play, just see if they are able to get something out of him and have him take up space. But it's also possible that he never plays uh, a single game in San Francisco because the key here was just getting Wilson for, for basically taking on that cost. Yeah, you know, Farhan... Um tried to push back and, and say if, if Cozart is healthy, you know, he'll be on the team, but there's a, uh, there's a fair amount of work being done with that. If, you know, because Cozart is currently hurt and currently rehabbing. Um, and so it could be pretty easy for them to say, you know, we're going to bring him back on a minor league deal or whatever, and we'll keep him in the organization. We'll, we'll want monitors rehab, but we're going to, Take we'd rather have that roster slot, the major league roster slot for Rule Five or whatever it is. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a different kind of announcement um, uh, coming out of uh, San Francisco at some point about Cozart's future of the team. But uh, Will Wilson, they they said they had they had him um, high on their board uh, last year, and they were really excited to to be able to basically acquire. You know, he was a 15th pick overall. Uh, you know, just this last year. So, uh, you know, will he be a shortstop primarily? They said he's already going to split time between short and second, but they tried to say that, that it would be that that's just what everybody does in the Giants organization, that they even Joey Bard is going to play some first and, and maybe outfield. And they just want positional flexibility from all their guys. Uh, but I think that's the one sort of question mark um, is, you know, is he a second baseman or is he a shortstop? Yeah, uh, I think it's a pretty interesting concept, though, especially for a team that somehow got the Braves to take on the final year of Mark Melanson's deal at the trade oh deadline God, last year. Crazy. I mean, that, that was going to cost the Giants more in 2020 than Zach Cozart, and they get a first-round pick back as part of that, too. So uh, Farhan continuing to tinker and shuffle and find creative ways to add talent to the organization and this is just the the latest what i'm sure will be a, a long list of of moves they continue to make uh, over the course of the upcoming season let's get to our beer of the week segment which is going to be a bit different this week because you set up a beer crawl 
to begin the winter meetings on Sunday. It's a great way to kick off the trip. I gotta I gotta tip the no. cap to you because that's no. brilliant. It was stupid. It's brilliant. It was so stupid. It was the dumbest thing. First of all, I announced to everybody my dereliction that I'm gonna be drinking for seven hours on the Sunday before the winter meetings start. <laughs> uh, Emma <laughs> and my editor, editor Emma Span said, uh, we already knew you were derelict. Uh, so, uh, that, that part, I guess may be overrated, but also, um, it's kind of hard. It's very hard to get people away from the winter meetings. There's a lot of gravity there. It's a great bar scene itself. And there's so many conversations we had. So that was maybe uh, a poor idea. And then, uh, the crawl aspect, like getting people to leave one place and go to another, um, is, is difficult. So, uh, those I may rethink those and just kind of set up shop somewhere in the future if I do this again. But uh, the the positive aspect of it was a uh, I got out of the winter meetings. You know I could have been there forever, um, and uh, b uh, got to go to Pure Project, which is uh, a really exciting new brewery in in San Diego that does really good beer and does it uh, tries to source sustainably. Um, and, uh, and, you know, has relationship with farmers in Costa Rica for, for, uh, with direct relationships for their, for their, for their fruit. Um, and, uh, was making great hazies. I mean, just really top class hazy IPAs. Um, and it was a really fun, like bar, like it was a really nice looking bar. It was like, a, you know, all sort of glass and cement and just a, a really cool, cool scene there. So I was really happy to, uh, to get to see that. And so I guess my beer of the week is, uh, you know, just pure project. I mean, it's just the brewery, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, whatever sort of tropical sounding hazy IPA they've got on tap right now is, 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 is the, is my beer of the week. <laughs> I'll just, I'm just going to follow, instead of making a selection, I'm just going to follow up with a question. I know you, because of you know, having professionally written about beer, uh, in the past, like you've, seen a lot more of the beer scene across the states is san diego the best beer city in america um i have not been to portland but the interesting thing about portland is that uh it's so the beer is so pervasive that it almost brings it down a notch because like you go to a coffee shop and they brew their own beer you know so it, 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 like everywhere has beer and that that sort of brings down the overall quality a little bit uh just because it's so pervasive you know um whereas san diego i think gets some credit for being kind of a birthplace of modern craft in a way um and uh at least when it comes to to west coast styles and west coast ipas and um so there's a lot of uh, resting on its laurels in san diego and that's one of the reasons i was really excited about pure project was because it was something new, you know, since, um, you know, modern times. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of breweries I like that have been newer, uh, half door is decent. We went there, uh, 32 North is good. Uh, there's a, you know, North, uh, park. I've heard some good stuff about uh, North park brewing. So there's some good stuff, but pure project was the first, uh, brewery in a while that kind of, uh, that was new and, 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 told me that it's a vibrant scene you know it's still a vibrant scene it's still being innovative it's still really good it's not just the you know the old school goats like pizza port and stone and ballast point and then 
the middle school stuff like modern times and society and there's actually a third wave now and i think it, there's rare it's rare to find a city where you have not only that sort of old school and not only that second wave but also a current innovative vibrant third wave uh situation going on i think the the short list of of cities like that are probably chicago uh you know seattle uh and san diego i think that that's probably my list maybe maybe you could put boston on that list if you call sam adams a goat uh and like society and trillium uh as like the second wave or not society's trillium and um lamplighter and and they have some innovative things going on there now. So I think that's probably my top three there. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking so much about nice weather because it's become hurt your face cold here in Wisconsin. <laughs> so thinking about hazies in San Diego has me uh, has me pretty jealous. But uh, uh, I'm, you know what? I'm glad you had. I'm glad everybody who's there is having a good time. That's, I'm glad you're having a good time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm not I'm not I'm mad. happy for you. I, I, I am. I'm trying to be at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be. Yeah. <laughs> As always, you can reach us via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com if you want to reach us. Got a show coming up probably on the usual day next week, back on Tuesdays, of course. You can find Eno on Twitter, at Eno Saris. You can find me, at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.